Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling, even if he has to use his now memories, is my friend and co-host, Adam. Hey, man. How's it going? <laughs> Good. Do you have now memories based off of what we've learned so far? I do not. No. I, I'm, I'm losing memories, if anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm forgetting you things every day. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like... The older I get, the less relevant I feel in terms of being able to just pull up trivia of information. Like, Right, right. I would say something to my wife, and then she would be like, are you sure? I'm like, let me check my phone. <laughs> like, no, I don't want to have to check my phone. Come on. Maybe I should just get one of those like brain teaser books to help me exercise my brain a little bit more. Yeah, I feel like as I get older, I if I was a computer, I have all the information in my hard drive, but... It's like I've lost the directory to a lot of it. I can't find it, right? <laughs> I just chaos. don't remember. Yeah, but like if someone says something, it's like it triggers something. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I know. And then I'll I'll rattle off like 10 facts about that topic or something. But somehow it's like I've lost the ability to access that data. <laughs> that <laughs> so would be called weird. RAM that you've lost. You have a yes, low RAM exactly. count is what you've got. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's in there. We just don't it's... have enough room to access it all. <laughs> Exactly. We've just accumulated too much information over yeah. our our <laughs> lots lives. Of, lots of dad jokes that have kind of replaced important things in my <laughs> life and my brain. <laughs> exactly. And some of it is just information that we haven't used in mm -hmm. 35 years. And so it makes sense that we have sort of pushed it to the very back. <laughs> oh, well, let's just celebrate what we do have. And that's, that's right. this show. <laughs> <laughs> Well, welcome back to our coverage of Season 2 of Stranger Things. We're in Episode 6, entitled The Spy. And just like the last episode, Adam, this, this episode was so packed with stuff. I would say if I were to compare them, which is unfair because it's just the whole season has just been really good. This one is probably not as epic, but it has an epic like finale. Like It finishes really strong. Solid episode overall. Mm-hmm. Not as many lines that I want to quote, but definitely some <laughs> solid stuff that we'll definitely get into. So let's just go yeah. ahead and rock right into the uh, to the cold open where we have Will, who is in absolute agony. So the previous episode, we were left with that crazy visual of Will just tremoring, or I can't think of the word. See, this is my now memories that don't work yeah. anymore, whatever. But seizure. He's having a seizure. There you go. And... Then we get that pull out, and then now we're back to the hospital. Will's in agony, and everything in his body is burning. So at this point, we know that he is absolutely connected to Shadow Monster, to these tunnels in some way, shape, or form, and that when they burn stuff, he gets burned, or at least he feels that burning. So that is a just really solid, like, here we are. We're in the episode <laughs> and Hopper is getting deloused, I think, or at least getting like a nice detailed shower of all the junk that's on him, which <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he appreciates, even though it's probably hurting his skin because it's probably like 150 degrees coming from that fire hose or whatever. But yeah, that was, uh, that's where we are before we get over to Dustin and Steve heading out to Dustin's place to, I believe, kill Dart. 
or at least try to, right? Yes, attempt to. Yeah, yeah. that's I don't know what their I know what their motive is, but I don't know what their confidence level is in terms of the success that they're going to actually be able to take out this thing. If this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, I'm really excited about this because they are fantastic together. In this episode, both of them really shine, and in particular this opening sequence. You know, Steve is driving his nice car and he asks Dustin, How do you know? How do I know if it's not a lizard? Yeah, how do you know if it's not just a lizard? Because his face opened up and he ate my cat. I think that's probably my favorite line of this episode. <laughs> I yeah. laughed out loud. And the way he delivers it, it's priceless. It's so matter of fact. They get the, the nail bat, which is epic. I wish, I think, I hope, that maybe that's an artifact that you can at least maybe purchase in the Stranger Things store somewhere. <laughs> don't know if you can get a miniature version of it, but man, I think that's going to become very iconic as the series goes on. That nail bat's going to yeah, do insane yeah. things. And it, it has done things already. I don't know if I want a bunch of teenagers running around with functional nail bats. I, I think sure. that's asking for trouble. But I kind of think that Steve needs to name this nail bat, kind of like the way yes. Bilbo Baggins had his sword sting right you know how they used to in medieval fantasy they would name their weapons i think he needs to call it something like the demo crusher or (laughs) i don't know uh okay (laughs) or he could stick with the baseball theme with like roy hobbs from the natural like calling it uh, calling it wonder boy i think that was the name of it but it had bolt of lightning on it i don't know what steve would call it so maybe we could maybe we can get that that we can think through that and think if we can name Steve's bat for him if he hasn't named it by the time we figure something out. (laughs) So Dustin gets to his storm cellar and Steve goes down into that storm cellar with minimal hesitation. The only hesitation he has, Adam, is he thinks this is a prank. He thinks he's getting punked by Dustin. Right. He's very skeptical. Yes. But the fact that he goes down there apart from that with really no hesitation, he's a better man than me. And I'm (laughs) I'm starting to get some more kudos for Steve Harrington because he is, I mean, he's kind of that unsung hero. So for me, for my money, if I'm going into battle with anybody, Steve's going to be my guy at this point. Yeah, I agree. But again, to be fair, he's skeptical. He doesn't think this is real. So who's to say how brave he might have been if he actually knew what he was going down to kill? (laughs) Although, historically speaking, we can say that he went right in there with that bat against the Demogorgon season one. So he's aware that there's some weird stuff out there and it's not out of the realm of possibility that Dustin could be telling the truth. I think right. he's just... I would just yeah. expect some trauma from him, like some hesitation <laughs> yeah. about taking on something from another dimension right. that he's right. very aware of. I mean, I, I just, I wouldn't do that. I'm not Steve, no, no, so he's... I'm staying out there with Dustin and I'm like, let's just let this thing go. And right. <laughs> what we find out is that they really did let it go <laughs> unintentionally. It dug a hole in the wall, and now it's part of what I would call kind of the living tunnels. I guess that's what we're calling them. I don't know what they're called. Sure, yeah. The Upside Down wasn't named until like episode five, so I don't think these have been given a name. I'm just calling them the, the alive tunnels or the living tunnels, and I may renege on that here in the next three minutes, but that's okay. <laughs> that's what they are. I mean, there are, some, there, are un, there are a series of network tunnels underneath Hawkins. I don't know if they have a more formal name in the show but there's a really great shot when they reveal dart kind of burrowed his way out of the cellar and into this network of tunnels that camera kind of pulls back from inside the tunnel away from dustin and steve and 
it's almost identical to that iconic shot from the Shawshank Redemption when the, yes. the warden throws the I forget what he mm-hmm. throws through the poster and then reveals oh there's a hole and it kind of pulls back. It's just worth noting because the Shawshank Redemption was also another short story that Stephen King wrote, which this series has taken a lot of inspiration from. So I always like to find those little those little moments. Yeah, I picked up on that too, and I thought it was a real subtle nod. I didn't know if it was for real, like if they were doing that intentionally, but now that you mentioned a Stephen King short story, it makes perfect sense that they would use a shot like that to really show the escape, you know. Of like Andy Dufresne, my friend, the Demodog. <laughs> and I'm and I <laughs> and I might be making this up. Maybe they just thought it was a cool shot. That's not uncommon. Just like the uh, opening shot of inside the trunk of Steve's car, where the camera's oh, in yeah. the trunk looking up. I mean, it's a very common shot that's used in films and television. But I love it. I think it's a great tool to kind of to start in the black and have the trunk door open, and then you, you reveal the the characters looking down. Yeah. So then we get the uh, the opening credits, and we move to the buyer house where the government, aka Hawkins Lab folks, are taking photos of everything. And then we cut back to the hospital, and this is where Joyce is getting mad at the doctors for how they have handled Will. And you know, crazy Joyce is justified. Joyce at this point, first season, yep. yes, she was justified, but she was kind of conspiracy theorist Joyce. This is really like Mama Bear Joyce that's coming out <laughs> in this episode, and I can't blame her. You know, she says. Can a single person in this room tell me what is wrong with my boy? What is wrong with my boy? And nothing gets resolved in that moment, which is perfect because you want that tension. You want us to stay with that, oh my gosh, what is happening to Will? I mean, we know sort of as the spectators, we've kind of made the connections, but we need to know if... Hawkins lab folks know more than we do. And right. I think in, in some ways we, we can have empathy for her because of that kind of disinformation that she's been given or maybe the lack of information that she's been given. And this is kind of the return of uh, hi- hyperactive Winona Ryder from the first season. <laughs> <laughs> she's been pretty chill most of this season so far. I mean, especially the first few episodes with her uh, relationship with Bob Newby. But hyperactive Winona is full on. She's back. Because she is just pissed and stressed. I feel bad for her. <laughs> she's right, just going, she's gone through so much. <laughs> she this, and this poor boy. <laughs> Why couldn't they pick a different kid? Yeah, right. For this, for this season, right? Why can't each yeah. kid get a season to be tortured and go through something horrible? <laughs> <laughs> just go around the neighborhood. You got four yeah. that we know that you can pick on. I mean, Bill's <laughs> exactly. got his own. He's he's been through too much, but apparently not. They just they just love him. <laughs> Lots of trauma in this yeah. uh, in this town. Speaking of which, uh, the next scene is at Murray's house, and if there's a second place finish for funniest people in the episode, Murray I think <laughs> is probably a a real close second. We we catch up with Nancy and um, Jonathan at his house and they are making copies of the incriminating tapes and getting ready to send to the newspapers. And then uh, they celebrate with vodka and this time they are drinking it. I still attest that they were not drinking vodka in the last (laughs) episode, that it was just tonic water this time based off of the reactions between Nancy and Jonathan. Yeah. No question. No questions there. Murray goes on like full psychologist on the couch counseling session with them saying things like, you've told me a lot of shockers today, but that 
That is the first lie when referring to Jonathan and Nancy not being a couple. It's not a lie. No, you're young, attractive, you've got chemistry, history, plus the real shared trauma. Absolutely. A character trait of people who are intimately involved, at least emotionally. And then he kind of reflects on all that he said here in the last few minutes. And he says, it is a curse to see so clearly. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's so funny just watching him sort of dissect their relationship. You can't take him seriously because while he has credibility as a reporter, which I think would probably lean into some of those observations that he's making, he's definitely not someone who would be credible in terms of like walking people through stuff. I will say this, though. I think he's seen enough to probably look at this couple or look at these two kids and say, yeah, there's more going on here than you want to admit. He sees what we see at that point. He just puts a lot of great words to it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I I don't know if you noticed when they were packaging up, you know, making copies of the tapes of the audio, he was using the the high speed dubbing feature. I don't know if Ah, you remember that. can make uh, fast copies of anything to give to your friends. That's a a cool Ah. feature. You You didn't have to wait and record or dub in real time, you could actually speed it up significantly. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. (laughs) I don't know that I ever used that feature because I don't know that I ever trusted it. Oh, yeah. Well, there was always a belief that it caused a quality issue, like that it wouldn't give you the same quality. But I don't know if that was actually true, if it was, or if that was just sort of a concern that people had that, oh, if you use high-speed dubbing, it's going to you know, reduce the quality of your audio you know, significantly. But I, if it does, it, I, I don't think it would be audible to most listeners. But Especially in the 80s. Oh, yeah, especially with what they were playing with, what the, the yeah, right. that they had. <laughs> that clear dialogue from the doctor yeah. with that perfect tape recorder that was... Anyway, <laughs> right. sorry, I'm going to get off my soapbox with that. I'm going to put that to you, bed. Yeah, you, you may need to write a letter to the... Uh, <laughs> producers of the show and let them know how much how offended you are <laughs> how dare you duffer brothers all the greatness you do and you lean into that trope how dare you <laughs> sorry i interrupted you what were you saying oh no no i i was just gonna say that we only get a shot of one of the address labels of the packages that they're mailing out and it's, it's for the chicago sun times which is the newspaper that murray previously worked for which they mentioned and I think in the very first episode, and it's also where Roger Ebert used to write all of his reviews for decades and decades. So I just thought that was a little, little fun tidbit. <laughs> Roger Ebert would give this conspiracy two thumbs up, I think. He would. <laughs> he <laughs> or Siskel one would. thumb. I think Siskel would one have thumb. to give it the other. Yeah, together they could. But maybe yeah. he would posthumously give it yeah. a second thumb. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> if I'm using he did have two. He yeah. did. He did have to, right there, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I shared them. Anyway, all yeah. right. <laughs> so the rest of the, the scene plays out. Uh, Jonathan agrees to take the, uh, the, the pull-out sofa, and Nancy takes the bedroom. You kind of know what's happening here. This great kind of jazz music is playing while they're kind of independently struggling, like, what should I do? And they kind of laugh. They come out. They meet each other. <laughs> and they say something along the lines of like, yeah, he's dumb, whatever. He doesn't know anything. And it's classic 80s stuff. It's it's really oh, yeah. like 
I don't think the Duffer brothers are trying to do anything original here. I think they're really playing into the fact that we know there's tension there. We know there's kind of some intimacy. And of course, that's what they do. They go to the bedroom and they consummate their love that night. (laughs) Or we assume they do. (laughs) Maybe they just talk about crazy things happening in the Upside Down and how they're going to kill the next Demogorgon. I doubt that. Based on some of the uh, aftermath the next morning, I, I have a feeling that yeah. they, they went all the way. <laughs> yeah. For sure. So then we go back to Lucas's house. Second time we've, yep. we've been to his house. And this is a great transition scene. Jonathan and Nancy are going into the bedroom to you know do their thing. And the next thing we hear is audio of Erica like <laughs> making kissy sounds between <laughs> He-Man and Barbie, <laughs> which I think them making out is completely sacrilegious. I think Lucas would agree with me as he does. And <laughs> They're from two different <laughs> worlds. They don't, they know, really they are. They, they really can't are. exist together. <laughs> and Erica says, Hey, they're in love. <laughs> right. So he's like, no, they can't do that. But Lucas finds out about the uh, code red. And I, t- I got to tell you, Adam, every time they say code red, I think about a few good men. Like, I cannot help but think, anytime I see Code Red, A Few Good Men, and then Mountain Dew. Like, in that order. I can't think anything more than that. I'm hoping the Code Red is done for a while. Otherwise, I'm going to have to queue up a little Aaron Sorkin screenplay love and watch that movie. Did you order the Code Red? I did the job. Did you order the Code Red? Red, I did! (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's it's, it's a stuff. classic movie, and yeah, the term Code Red, which means something completely different in that movie, and is sort of the whole basis of that film. Everything revolves around what a Code Red was and what it meant. Yeah, for anyone who's seen that movie, I don't think you can avoid that sort of connection when you hear the term Code Red. But, you know, yeah. before A Few Good Men came out in, what, 92 or something? 92, I, yeah. I, co- yeah, code red was just, you know, it was a, like a military or medical term for something for an emergency. So that's that's yeah. not what it meant in a few good men, but right. Yeah. And I wasn't confused. I was just it always right. my my now memories go someplace else every time I <laughs> hear it. So. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. But ya. that's that scene ends uh with another great Dustin line cuz he's talking to Lucas through the walkie and he goes well, when you were having sister problems, Dart grew again. He escaped, and I'm pretty sure he's a baby Demogorgon. I mean, just the deadpan way he delivers yeah. his lines in this episode. I can see why he's your favorite. Like, he is just so matter-of-fact with everything that's going on. He's not yeah. overly panicked, but he's aware of the situation. Yes, when he needs to yell into a walkie and say Code Red several times, yes, he's definitely heightened. But I really feel like he's just like, yeah, this is the world we're living in right now. we we got to move. Let's go get this baby Demogorgon. And I love that Dustin has his headset on all the time. He'll never miss a walkie-talkie call because he is constantly, wherever whether he's doing something, whether he's on his bike, just like a a cell phone, he can just turn it on and say, I'm here. Whereas all the other guys clearly just leave their walkies at home for any sister or sibling to pick up. Dustin's always on the move and always available. (laughs) Yep. He's yep. really the best of that group in that sense. He is the most dependable. <laughs> For sure. And to pair him up with Steve, I think, is a great pairing because yes. one is like very much in the know about everything. And it's got the, it's got the brains and the brawn. I guess that right, would be kind right. of the best way to describe it. Yep. Steve's a little aloof and yeah. Dustin is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. definitely not aloof. <laughs> yeah. 
But he tells Lucas to bring his binoculars and wrist rocket, which I'm not sure why, because clearly that had no effect whatsoever. Well, it was L. I, I know that it looked or it could be perceived as though they were, as they were firing it, it was causing it to fly across the room. But clearly, I think they all knew that L <laughs> was responsible for that. They use context clues to figure yes. that out. <laughs> So then the episode kicks over to Hawkins' lab, and we see Hopper throwing up, which I will just say is, I, I say this tongue-in-cheek, but actually kind of serious. This is just really good acting and really great Foley work, because I really felt yeah. kind of gross as he was doing it. And I wanted to, just at, at a macro level, say that I was particularly connected to a lot of the um, the set design in this episode. Mm. I know yeah. that we've seen the buyer house decked out with all the papers. Murray's house looks really cool. Like it's very, very much a conspiracy theorist house with the, you know, with the papers and the string and stuff. There was a picture of like Bigfoot in the back that said, don't <laughs> trust this man or whatever. I noticed this stuff as we noticed as we're going through these individually, it's easier to notice that kind of stuff. But I just want to throw some kudos to the production design team because that's a lot of stuff that you have to put together. So like those pieces of paper that will draw, you have to put them in a certain order. I mean, there's a method to that on the back end where you're trying to, okay, here's a story we're telling. We can't just put random paper on the wall. Maybe they could for wide shots, but right. clearly there are parts of it that as you're painting across, you definitely see connectivity. And later on at the table, another great set of production work with all the photos. So just kudos. It, it was really on point this this episode. I noticed it really well. You're 100% right because they have to go to such lengths to make everything authentic. Letters, address labels, you know, newspaper clippings. The people developing these materials in the production design team don't know if they're going to be featured in a close-up. So everything has to be ready for a close-up and thought out with every detail being taken care of because they just don't know. I'm sure the vast majority of these things never do get that close-up shot. So it, it just is in the background, but it has to be ready. And that's what's amazing is that they just really need to go to such lengths to kind of figure, okay, like who is Murray? What would he have on his walls? What kind of neon beer signs would he have? What kind of yeah. you know, uh, photos would he have on his walls? What kind of artwork? What kind of TVs would he have? What kind of computer equipment? All of it. It's like it all has to be kind of created. Like that's part of his character. And then that, I'm sure, helps the actor come in and embody that character, right? If you, if you see, this is my environment. This is who I am. And it's just, it's impressive. And sometimes it's fun yeah. to, to kind of really look at the background and see if you can catch little little fun details that weren't really featured in any way, but do add a little bit of depth to the character, just like that Bigfoot sign you mentioned. Yeah. And it's just, it's things that really aren't even Easter egg sometimes. It's just no, really just, consistent to, the, to right. the character, as you mentioned, and it fills out the scene without being distracting. So I think in some ways, when you talk about cinematography and camera work, I go back to the episode that took place on Halloween where there's that great, maybe it's a pan or a track, I don't remember the specific name of the shot, but the camera starts on the floor of Mike's basement and it pans up and you see all the candy spread out all over the table that right. leads you to the conversation between him and Will. Stuff like that just really fascinates me. Again, it's kudos. It's things that if I got a shot to make a movie, that these are these are things that I'm sort of taking mental notes of. Okay, look, if I'm going to create a story, this is a shot that I would like to have. Not to just replicate, but to say, okay, that's a cool way to show this. And so I'm taking notes mentally on, yeah. 
hey, if I ever do a short film again, these would be some cool shots to really create that kind of tension. As a filmmaker, from a technical standpoint, it's been really fun to kind of walk through that each episode and see how the Duffers and their team craft all this. And you couldn't have great shots without things that you're actually shooting. So right, right. Would, would that shot work as well if there was no candy on the table and on the floor? Maybe, yeah. But it tells more of that story that you can tell that they've been talking for a while and that they just dumped their candy out and, and that this is what they're going to do as opposed to them just sort of sitting down like they're having coffee on the couch or whatever. So right, very right. much things like that that I think are very cool. I love the replication of the photos to the drawings later on in the episode. I thought that was kind of mm-hmm. cool. Not only just a great storytelling device, but again, you know, <laughs> these take up a full on conference table to actually figure stuff out. So yeah, yeah. just really great stuff. Definitely. So Dr. Owens comes in as, uh, as Hopper is throwing up and he says, good news. I thought he was saying he's going to release him, but he hands him a, I guess a radiation suit of some kind that, uh, that the boys in, in Hawkins lab kind of sport on a regular basis. And he takes him down to that underworld where the, the living tunnels are and kind of reveals to him that this is vast. I don't know that Dr. Owens knew this before Hopper revealed the whole pumpkin thing. I don't think he did. I don't think so either. Yeah. I think this all transpired at some point once they started investigating the pumpkins. Because clearly in the scene that you're referring to, they have broken through the ground of that bottom underground level where they were burning the gate and they now have rigged some kind of makeshift like elevator system to lower them in like a basket you know hundreds of feet (laughs) down below And, and i'm sure we're as we saw in the very first episode of the first season, this lab is many floors below ground where it takes place. And so mm-hmm. we're going even further down underground, clearly, as you said, revealing this network of tunnels that has started right below the Hawkins Laboratory. I really enjoyed, as they're descending down into this cavern, I really loved Owen's explanation that he gave to Hopper. All living organisms develop defense mechanisms against attack. They adapt. They find some way to survive. And this kind of mirrors what Mr. Clark was teaching the kids earlier in the season in in the science class. And it also kind of reminds me of Dr. Ian Malcolm's chaos theory from Jurassic Park with life (laughs) finds a way. It's just, it's, it's interesting. And he also talks about how it's kind of that all of this is like a it's like a cancer spreading. It started underneath the lab, but it's been spreading outward. So clearly this is something they have to they have to stop from getting too big because yeah. it's not gonna it's not gonna be containable if they don't prevent it from continuing to grow. Yeah. And Hopper even says, Why aren't you burning this? And he said there's a complication. Yeah. And of course we know what that complication is. They right. haven't confirmed it yet, but we know that there's gonna be the connecting of the dots between the Hawkins Lab doctors and and Will. Elsewhere in Hawkins Lab, um, I guess it's Will's hospital room, we have this great moment between Joyce and Bob where she really lets him in on the real-life stuff that happened to Will. And if he wasn't in it by now with the whole (laughs) mystery to solve of the the tunnels, it's a a map. It's not a road. It's a map. And where they're going, they didn't need roads. They apparently just needed (laughs) tunnels. So anyway, um, back to the future episode. Sorry. I'm not sorry about that. But he's definitely in it now. 
Bob is continuing, you know, five for five, six for six. I guess it's five for five because he wasn't in one episode. But he says that he can't believe stuff like this happens in Hawkins. And I would be okay with that because that would be me. But then he ties it back into his loving relationship with Joyce. He goes, and especially not to someone like you. And I'm like, oh, Bob, you're so good. And (laughs) she looks at him and she basically kind of affirms what he's done over the last 24 hours. And he goes very just kind of humbly Bob Newby superhero yes you are you are a superhero and uh, <laughs> he's a superhero that, that kind of looks like a, a teddy bear Jedi with his scrubs and blanket so he's a very soft superhero. a little bit yeah and I just, <laughs> like he doesn't Ewok. freak out at all like he like he's a little surprised but he, he kind of takes it all in stride and I think that's interesting there was one moment that just kind of made me laugh, though, when Joyce is saying how they made her sign thousands of documents or a thousand documents. And Bob just says, what kind of documents? <laughs> like, that's <laughs> that's what's important. Yeah. But yeah, he's, he's just kind of going with it, which is, I guess, what else are you going to do? He could either just, you know, go with it or he could run out of the room screaming, I guess. But that doesn't seem like it's in character. I think he's just so enamored with Joyce which yeah. kind of reinforces that conversation that he had with her outside the pharmacy where he's like, I get to date you. I get to be yeah. with you. And I think he really does enjoy being sort of a father figure in some ways to Will. Not so much Jonathan because apparently he's off having sex with Nancy and not caring about his family. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, he's not. But no, he doesn't connect with Jonathan. He's a tough cookie, I think, is something he said like that a couple episodes ago. Yeah. But I think all of that sort of really reinforces why Bob is sticking around. He's not just there for a light dating relationship. I really think he wants to marry Joyce at some point. I think he wants to see this thing through. And he even says that comment about, I guess moving to Maine isn't such a crazy idea after all. And she's like, Oh yeah, it is. I I think I've misquoted that. But this idea of him recognizing that they really can't leave Hawkins, not because they have history, but because there's unresolved stuff here. And if they left to go to Maine, I don't know if that would necessarily follow them, but I felt like Joyce was telling him, unspoken that if we do it, it can't be now. We have to get this other stuff figured out. And (laughs) they're a long way from figuring that out. Yeah. And clearly up until this point, it would be impossible because, I mean, he didn't know this. Bob didn't know, but they clearly had to stay because Will was getting treatment at the Hawkins lab for these episodes he was having. So even if she she wanted to just pick up and and move them out of town and move to Maine with Bob, he wasn't going to be able to get treatment the way he was getting anywhere else. Only Hawkins Lab had any history or understanding of what he was potentially going through. Yeah. But now he, now Bob knows and he's he's in the loop. So <laughs> he, he's ready for whatever comes next. He is officially released from the Matrix. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and as I said, oh, man. he's taking it quite well. Yeah. And he's not the only one that sort of wakes up from all this. Like he's not, uh, Will yeah. wakes up at this point a little like aha moment for me. He does not recognize Bob. And I was like, what? Oh my goodness. And then we're left going back to Murray's house. Uh, Apparently it's the next morning. There's the awkward breakfast that you mentioned. Yes. (laughs) There's this great moment. I just want to point out because it's a pretty short scene. Murray, as he is eating and smiling because he knows what happened, he drops his eggs. And I don't know if that was planned. Like I don't, if it was, that's epic. I mean, but he's like stabbing his eggs and he's smiling and chewing and his eggs just fall down. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, it's a great little sight gag. Either it was an, an accent that he completely 
played with, like he just owned it as the character, or it was something that was intentional and written, like you drop your eggs and kind of laugh about it or something. You know, I, it's, it's hard to know, but that's when you know they did a good job, when you can't tell, because it's so yeah. seamless that it just feels like this is what these characters are saying and doing, and here's what happened. He dropped his eggs. and Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think he wants them sticking around because the scene no. quickly kind of cuts to them leaving. And he says, and if you need to reach me again, don't. Now, this was kind of abrupt for me, Adam, because I thought that yeah. they'd kind of had a little bond there. But it sounds like he's just got an agenda at this point. Like he wants to get this thing solved. He'll let them know what happens. But he is a recluse at this point. Like he is like, yeah. I can't trust anybody. I'm glad you guys had sex in my bedroom. Or maybe he's not glad, but you need to get out because this is my house and my own yeah. conspiracy world that you're not privy to everything. Right. And I will say that because he does say, keep your eyes on the papers right before he tells them and don't come back. I think that he, Murray, at this point, doesn't feel he needs them anymore. And mm -hmm. he may he may continue down the rabbit hole on his own, invest further investigating this. But I think he kind of feels as though he got everything he needed out of them and these are just two kids anyway so what do i need them for so he just doesn't want them to bother him and i'll also say that if for some reason jonathan and uh, nancy end up getting married i think i think they need to invite murray to the wedding because i think oh, he's yeah. responsible for their yes for their officiate union. man yeah officiate. <laughs> get yourself a little get yourself a little license well the internet doesn't <laughs> exist at this point so it can't get bet, can't be that easy but yeah bring him in at least give him a piece yep. of cake he deserves that. Yeah. <laughs> and don't make him buy you a present. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we move from one abrupt <laughs> place to another. Uh, Billy's house, Ugh. which on the outside looks really great. On the inside, it looks like a fraternity's house that's gone bad. And Yeah, it's he, kind of a dump. <laughs> Billy is so angry all yeah, the time. All the time. <laughs> like, there is no letting up with his anger. You know, this is double down whenever he is um, <laughs> working out. And I, I do believe, I'm, I'm just going to say this, I do believe that smoking and drinking while working out is pretty counterproductive. Yeah, but you have to understand, he's not working out for the health benefits. He's working out <laughs> to look good, right? So he doesn't care. He just wants to cut muscles, right? And, and okay. he wants to look cool. And so for him, it's a means to an end. Okay. And so, Yeah. <laughs> Drinking and smoking is just it's part of what he has to do to get oh, there. Man. Yeah. Such a, such a conflated <laughs> kind of contrast of things going on here. I do like that Rat's playing in the background. I think that's pretty appropriate as, yeah. he's, as he's working out. And, and Lucas is ringing the doorbell. And I'm going, Lucas is dead. I mean, that's, I the, that's the truth of the matter. At this point, Lucas is dead. If, if Billy answers the door, which he's not going to apparently, yeah, Lucas is, <laughs> his ass is grass. Let's just say it. I mean, that's yeah. exactly. Let's use a Steve Harrington line. Max comes to the door. Lucas tells her, hey, if you want proof, I'm going to show it to you. And then as she's coming back in, Billy's like, who was that? <laughs> her response is great. Mormons. Mormons. Talkative ones. Talkative ones. She says. Talkative Morgan. Yeah. <laughs> Talkative Mormons. Not... <laughs> And he kind of buys it or he respects her her excuse enough to kind of let her pass, which I found interesting. You know, based yeah. on how he's responded to her previously, mm -hmm. I expected him to kind of block her and be like, who is it really? Right. But he doesn't. He just yeah. kind of kind of accepts it and lets her go. 
Yeah. It's interesting. And in a small production moment here, yeah. as she is about to answer the doorbell, she's taping up her skateboard. Yeah. So two thoughts. One, did it break and she's repairing it? I don't think that's the case. Or two, is she putting tape on it to give it some more like grip for her feet? I'm wondering if it's the it second It looked one. cracked to me uh, as I was okay. watching it. I think it did break. I don't know if we're supposed to know when or how it broke. I don't know if yeah. that... I don't know if I missed something from the last episode or the episode before or something. Yeah, I'm not it's it's a really good question, but clearly something happened to her skateboard. Maybe Billy broke it, you know, in a fit mm. of rage, you know, he's yeah. he's angry all the time, so who knows. Well, he said, you know what happens when you lie and maybe it's Yeah. she got hit or maybe he hit her with the skateboard, so maybe we're kind of or maybe he like just took the skateboard and, you know, smashed it over it, his yeah. knee or something. Yeah, I don't know. It's I think yeah. I think the general point of the scene is we're supposed to get a sense of their home life not being yeah. very good and where are the parents ever they're yeah. never around like we've never seen them it's like they're basically raising themselves it, mm-hmm. it appears and we do get a little more about her backstory a little later we'll get to that but up until this point we haven't really heard even a mention of her parents yeah it's like peanuts but a nightmare of peanuts <laughs> yeah, right, a, night, a nightmare <laughs> snoopy situation right <laughs> <laughs> the, the demodog is Snoopy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that to my childhood. Stop that. <laughs> Sorry. That's not, that's not okay. <laughs> so she leaves through the window, and I'm guessing behind the house, because to leave by the front is stupid. Yeah. It looked like, upon watching it for a second time, it looked to be like the backyard. There was a fence back there. And so she has a, her bedroom facing the rear of the house, and clearly she told Lucas, go, go meet me around the back, you know, and I'll sneak out my window. My brother's here. And they do. And she jumps in the back of his bike with him, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah. She's going with it. Yeah. Yeah. Off they go. And then off we go back to Hawkins lab and Will is getting questioned and he can't remember a lot of people. Here's something really interesting. I watched his face. Yeah. Very specifically. And he remembers Mike. And I put in a question in my notes, or does he? Because the way he says Mike... And the way he looks at Hopper feels somewhat robotic. And I was reminded of the scene in Flight of the Navigator. Did you ever see that movie growing yeah, up, Flight yeah. of the Navigator? The okay. Disney film, right? Yes. Yeah. So the kid in there is, in a similar way, possessed by something. And the way he's answering questions is very just matter-of-fact, nonchalant. And I really feel like the creature that has him is sort of prompting these answers. Now... The episode never gives us a confirmation of him remembering Mike. I think he does because later on he talks to him in a way that feels like Will. But the other folks, I'm starting to assume that as the creature takes more over him, he starts losing his own memories of people in his life, Hopper and Bob. And I don't know that he ever says he, he knows Joyce. I think he does. I think he knows his mom still. But yeah, I think at this point we're confirming in some ways that he doesn't know some people, but he knows others. Or whatever is possessing him is smart enough to be able to fake it, to say like, oh, that's another boy. I bet I'm supposed to know him. Yes. Right? I'm going to say yes, because he kind of hesitates, if you remember. Yeah. He yeah. doesn't respond right away when asked if he, if he knows Mike. So to me, it's it's somewhat ambiguous still at this point whether or not he knows anybody or if he's just, he understands what he has to say to kind of cover up the fact that he's 
possessed or that that this mm-hmm. whatever this is is possessing will yeah he also identifies him i'm putting that in air quotes for those who yeah. can't see us which is everybody um except you <laughs> adam and i was reminded of again this nugget that you've kind of drilled into my head that him is significant and then he says that the suit people upset him so what do we do with that that they shouldn't have done that like it's so creepy yeah. just to hear him saying that he's referring i think to the soldiers that were down in the tunnels right burning right the to help free hopper and they were burning the the area around him so that's obviously when it triggered that kind of spasm or whatever you want to call it the the, mm-hmm. the painful experience that he had so that was painful to him as well and that's replicated in this scene too, where Dr. Owens right. brings in like that little slug thing or that tentacle and yep. they confirm that Will is definitely connected to the creature. I, I like that. So I see how Hopper busts in and says, stop, you know, he just gets very much yeah. like, protected. Enough. Will. Yeah. And then I think if there's any redeeming value in Dr. Owens, it's his ability to kind of explain how we can understand some of the stuff that's going on. He mentioned right. that the upside down, all the tentacle stuff is, they're burning them like weeds. They can't get rid of them. They can contain them. And then he describes what's happening to Will like a virus. When a, when a typical virus attaches itself to its host, it duplicates. It spreads, essentially hijacking the host. A virus is alive. It has an intelligence. That's not, that's not unusual. What is so unusual here? This virus... The infected hosts seem to be communicating. It has some sort of a hive intelligence, and it's connecting all the hosts. And that helped me kind of understand that Will isn't just connected, but that there is some communication. And as we find out, a little bit of behavioral kind of control which exactly. is very yeah. unnerving. Uh, clearly, Dr. Owens doesn't know that yet. And, you know, he's Mr. Optimist. You know, he says we can kill him like weeds earlier. And then now he's like, but the great thing about a virus is that it can be cured. Little does he know, at least not right now. <laughs> <laughs> but Joyce says, you know, what happens when my boy is gone? You know, completely. He doesn't have an answer for that. That's No, he doesn't. That's the problem. It's also interesting in this scene, they're in a hallway, and as Owens is telling them this, and Hopper is with her, not Bob, and Hopper puts his arm around Joyce, which I thought was rather interesting, because they're, mm-hmm. again, we know that they may have a history, and then they have shared trauma from season one, so there's clearly more trauma going on now that they're sharing. Who doesn't have shared trauma? Yeah. You know, <laughs> they just, yeah. they're just passing out shared trauma at the, That's at right. the pharmacy, like <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Wasn't it at the end of the movie Speed when... Keanu Reeves, his character's talking to Sandra Bullock and, and right. they kind of reiterate that, you know, folks with shared trauma shouldn't get into relationships because it's overly emotional and has no depth. <laughs> that, that's what it was, that it won't last. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it didn't because Speed 2 came around and they were not together yeah. anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well they consummated like jonathan and nancy just not not in murray's bedroom yeah. right anyway <laughs> that's right so yeah I, I i hope i hope bob is still uh her main man here and that this was just a, a nice gesture on hopper's part to to make her feel better yeah it's hard to tell but we're rooting for bob i think we're on team yeah. Bob for 
for Joyce <laughs> uh, yeah. because he has less trauma than, than Hopper <laughs> does. <laughs> Maybe right. not after this season, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what happened, you know, where it's all going to go, but for now. Yeah. So then we move to the train tracks. I love this shot. It's almost, it's very Stand By Me-esque <laughs> with them mm-hmm. walking along the train tracks, except they're not walking singing 50s tunes they're walking throwing meat on the ground (laughs) buckets of meat where did they get that i have no idea i'm not asking any more questions about this stuff but i love the fact that they are at least staying sanitary with they have rubber gloves on so that's good at least steve does (laughs) it's raw meat so (laughs) yeah you want to be you want to be careful let's let's be careful (laughs) and the banter between these two is so good still just top notch Dustin's explained this whole thing about the slug or about the, the creature and wanting to impress Max. I mean, why would a girl like some nasty slug anyway? An interdimensional slug because it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think yeah. anyone that's cool would think that's pretty awesome. Yeah. This is also the scene, Adam, that I think needs to go down in our history with this podcast, confirming, <laughs> affirming our love for Steve's hair, because clearly we're not the only ones. Well, not everyone can have your perfect hair, all right? What I didn't expect was that we'd actually get a work instruction on how to have perfect hair. It's Fabergé Organics. Use the shampoo and the conditioner, and when your hair's damp, it's not wet, okay, when it's damp. Damp. Do four puffs of the Farrah Fawcett spray. And I may or may not have Googled some of the phrases like Fabergé Organics and Farrah Fawcett spray to see if that's a real thing. <laughs> were they were they, were they real? I can neither confirm nor deny at this okay. point. <laughs> I, I will say that right now your hair looks amazing. So I don't, I don't know what you. you've done. But. <laughs> Hats do wonders by hiding the things <laughs> yeah. that are almost gone. So let's just leave it at that. But Steve is giving Dustin some great girl advice, and it's typical. But is it? Well, it's not okay. Well, okay, it's not great, but his intentions are good. Yeah, there you go. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, his intentions are good, and I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Like I think this is an unlikely bromance, if you will. Yeah, we call it that. So hopefully, we get more more of that. (laughs) It proves that opposites attract. I mean, even as friends, like that they are as farthest apart as two people could be, not just in age, but in, you know, if they were older, it wouldn't be a big deal, a couple of years. But, you know, when you're a teenager, a year is like a tremendous gap, you know, like, yeah. oh, he's in, he's in 11th grade, I'm only in 10th. That's a huge deal. But I think they're probably three, four years apart, maybe. I'm just kind of guessing that Dustin's like 13 and Steve's 17, something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's- yeah they wouldn't, normally become friends and again again dustin is sort of uh, an intellectual love science all of that and steve is as you put it he's the brawn he's the cool guy good with the girls yeah <laughs> yeah i don't know that steve would have a lot of respect for dustin if he saw his lunchbox with mookley on it so <laughs> hopefully you'll leave that at home if they hang out again <laughs> but the good thing is that that dustin is the kind of person that wouldn't hide it he, he would just own it which I think is makes him pretty True. cool. Which probably would make Steve respect him a little bit more, even right. if he thought it was completely juvenile. But right. he would say, Dustin's pretty juvenile, so it makes right. sense. Exactly. <laughs> this episode had one kind of really interesting moment of, I would call, vulnerability with Hopper. He's in mm-hmm. his car, and he's using Morse code to try to contact Eleven. 
and you hear this whole kind of spiel of him really apologizing. And I think it's because of what's, what he's experienced and what he saw with Will and all that stuff. And he says, I don't want you to get hurt at all. And I don't want to lose you. And I think the best part about this whole kind of monologue with him is how he ends it. He has this like fatherly touch. He finishes it by saying, eat all the peas, even if they're mushy and eat healthy stuff. Don't just eat egos. I mean, these are things that a dad would say yeah. to get his son or daughter just it's just grow. It's just, it's good childlike advice, mm-hmm. but because it's coming on the cusp of what we've seen him experience, it feels so tender. And this is a rare tender hopper moment. Uh, yeah. He's always been gruff and rugged yeah. and it's great to see that vulnerability with him that we really haven't seen since the season one finale of the flashbacks with him and his daughter. So I thought this is kind of cool that we get to see this moment of vulnerability. I love the fact that we get an apology from him. Whether it's justified or not, this is really huge when it comes to parent-child relationships. When I can own up to stuff that I've done, and I look at my son in the eye and I say, look, I'm really sorry that I overreacted. I shouldn't have done that. I was angry, and I apologize. That is huge in our family, to be able to not just always apologize, but to really be honest, because our kids need to see our mistakes, and they need to see that we mess up too. And I thought this scene really, really personified that. And so go Hopper. Would it be a good dad? Yeah. Even though you're not her dad. And what's interesting is that I wonder if he would have even said all of this if he knew for sure that she was listening. He doesn't know. He just uses their Morse code to send a signal to her. And then he just starts speaking through the police radio to his radio in the cabin, hoping, assuming that she's there listening that she can't say anything back. He doesn't know if she's there. He doesn't know if she's listening. He's hoping that she's returned, but clearly she hasn't. She's not in this episode at all, which is interesting. So he's the kind of guy, Hopper, where I don't know if he was face-to-face with her, if he would actually have said the same things or apologized. It might be because of everything that he's just been through, almost dying in these underground tunnels, and the fact that he's thinking these things and just needs to vent he needs to, to say what he's been bottling up for some time, just hoping that she's there absorbing and listening, well, and accepting. There's something psychological about being able to have a one-way conversation. It's easier yeah. to send a text or a letter or an mm-hmm. email than it is to get into a face-to-face conversation because you can say what's on your mind. You can be very as clear as you, you can try to be as clear as you need to be. And I think for him, it was somewhat therapeutic. It's almost like being in a confessional where he's able to kind of really just say, this is what I feel guilty about. This is what I'm sorry for. And I think you're right. I think if he were sitting there on the couch with her, you know, looking at her, I think it would be more difficult for him to say that stuff. And that's normal. It's normal for human beings, not just parents and their children. But the idea of being able to be honest with her, I don't think any of it was insincere by any means. I think it was all true. But I think it was made easier by the fact that he didn't see her, that he wasn't responding to her either blank stares or to her confused looks and things like that. And so sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes it's important to be able to say those things. So unfortunately, she's not hearing that. She's not there. And as you said, she's completely absent from this episode, which is in hindsight kind of mind boggling because (laughs) I I know she, she was sort of one of the cruxes of the last season. But I think that's a testament to how good the cast is, how great the story is, and how great the writing is, and the direction that we can move this whole thing forward with the absence of a significant character. Yeah, for an entire episode. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we're back in Hawkins' lab, and um, they're examining Will's brain in, I guess, an X-ray, and apparently it's changing into what looks like a Rorschach ink blot, where there's more stuff, I guess, happening with it. Joyce is getting very impatient, rightly so. She demands to see the doctor. And then the, the scene ends with Will, or the creature, seeing something. There's like this kind of focus in on the security guard's gun, and then it yeah. cuts back to a guy in a suit with fire, and he says to Mike, the shadow monster, I think I know how to stop him. And at this point, Adam, this is where I felt like the episode sort of amped up its energy. Like it was very, like very speedy as we got through. I mean, still a lot of right. great moments here, but it was kind of building to this point. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what kicks us over to the junkyard where Dustin wants Lucas to meet him. They all meet up, uh, him, Lucas, Steve, and Max. Yep. And this is where Steve realizes that Max is actually Dustin's crush, kind of gives him this look. And there's this hilarious moment that uh, we have between Lucas and Dustin where Dustin's talking to Lucas. And they're essentially, Dustin's kind of apologizing for keeping Dart under his hat, literally, and metaphorically. And there's no apology necessarily, but they sort of make up. And right as they're about to shake hands, Steve interrupts and he says... Hey, dickheads, how come the only one who helped me out is this random girl? We lose light in 40 minutes. Let's go. Let's go, I said. Oh, right, A similar thing happened in the pilot episode of The Cosby Show that I thought made The Cosby Show so great is at the end of the episode, you would think that there's going to be like music. There's this bonding moment between, between Heathcliff, Huxtable, and Theo, and they're having this great conversation, and you anticipate this music, and there's like this bonding moment. And the episode just turns to Cliff saying, Theo, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. There's no wonder you get D's and everything. Now, you are afraid to try because you're afraid that your brain is going to explode and it's going to ooze out of your ears. Now, I'm telling you, you are going to try as hard as you can. And you're going to do it because I said so. I am your father. I brought you in this world and I'll take you out. And I think that same right. kind of beat is what's being used here where you have like, oh, the music is like blah, blah, blah. And then Steve interrupts and the music just stops. And we've had right. that a couple of times already in this season. But I thought that was a great way to, to kind of end the scene there. Yeah, yeah. It's good. And it's perfectly in character for Steve. He's just like not having, like, guys, we're here for a purpose. We're here to take care of this thing. And now clearly Steve is completely on board. He's, yeah. he knows this is, this is a real situation. But Max doesn't yet. Max is still on the fence. She has agreed to go along for this ride to meet Dustin and, and Steve, but she doesn't really believe anything. And why, why would you really? If someone told you any of what they're experiencing, you would be like, come on, what are you talking about? So that's about to change. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah. But now before we uh, catch up with Jonathan and Nancy, they come back to his house and they see what new decorations Joyce and company have uh, added to the walls. Yeah, like, he finds what? a Polaroid cartridge and sort of susses out that, oh, I don't shoot Polaroid. This must be somebody else. And I think that's the last time we see them in this episode. Where I think so, we don't really yeah. know where they go or they don't say where they go. So they're kind of out of the picture 
for the last you know fifteen minutes of the episode, and they're, yeah, they're know, out of the Polaroid. Out of the, <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, they're gonna see what Sorry. develops. <laughs> Dad joke, yeah, <laughs> even better. Yeah, that's it for them for this episode. Yeah, yeah. So we're back in Hawkins' lab, and Will looks at all the pictures on the table, mapped out like his house, which. You know, kudos to the uh, to the lab folks for being able to put that stuff together fairly quickly because it took a while yeah. for Joyce and, and company to do that themselves. Of course, they were using their whole house where they're just using a conference room table. But right. he points to an area on the map and he says he doesn't want me to see there. I think it's important. And of course, my my thoughts go back to Close Encounters. This means something. This is important. Exactly. Clearly, my brain is like connected to other movies as I'm going through this episode, which is fine because they're good movies. Well, and I think that's what the show creators are intending to do. I think they're trying to trigger your your memories of all the films and shows that you loved growing up. Yeah, yeah. Then we get sort of this duplicitous back and forth scene sort of between the junkyard and Hawkins. Um, everyone, mm-hmm. and I mean, everyone is getting ready for a battle. The uh, The folks at the lab are getting suited up. and They're going to this place. And we find out that they're going to use radar and stuff like that. Then at the junkyard, there's a lot more stuff going on. They're putting the meat down and they're kind of boarding up the, what I call the battle bus. Yeah. <laughs> and for some reason, I kept thinking about the Lost Boys. And I'm wondering, was there a scene like this where kids were sort of getting ready to take yeah. down the vampires? Well, like in the middle of the movie, there was a uh, scene where they know they're going to attack their house. Um, because they had given them permission to enter. So then they're like filling up, you know, their water guns with holy water and, you know, getting all of their equipment ready and traps ready to defend the yeah. house. It's kind of like the vampire version of Home Alone. Gotcha. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's, I also thought Home Alone, but I think more yeah. so because of the uh, the 80s atmosphere. This one kind of right. harkened back to the, the Lost Boys. Then we sort of settle on the junkyard at night where the epic battle is supposedly going to take place. Lucas has his binoculars from the war. He's on top of the bus. And of course there's fog covering the ground because if you've got devil dogs or demodogs or whatever we're calling them, you can't see them with that fog. Yeah. <laughs> or at least it's so dramatic. Yes. Yeah, makes it dramatic. <laughs> Apparently this is the part where we find out Dustin's uh, jealous of Lucas and Max. <laughs> Steve reinterprets it. He thinks it's Dustin playing hard to get or being, you know, aloof when in actuality he's like, I don't care. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Steve's like proud of himself that he, he gave good advice to Dustin. Like, you're doing he a good did. job. <laughs> it's like, it's like she sucks, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but up on top of the bus, this was kind of out of nowhere for me, Adam. I didn't really expect this kind of conversation between Lucas and Max. And he's talking about asking her, does she miss California? And she opens up quite a bit about her family. So we find out that her parents are divorced, her mom and stepdad wanted a fresh start away from her bio dad, which she, mm-hmm. she kind of looks at as lame. Like that's really kind of a cop out to her. And we also find out that she gets beaten by her brother, Billy. And she says, I don't want to be like him ever. Like she's very yeah. adamant that there's something about him. And she says exactly what we said earlier. He is so angry all the time. Now we don't know why we yeah. assume that it's because of a broken family this is where I think we find out that her mom and stepdad live there in Hawkins because mm-hmm. obviously they moved there. But at this point, we don't know where they are. I mean, maybe they just work a lot. Yeah, no, they're they're absent. And she mentions that her stepbrother is angry at 
I think his father. That's what we're kind of led to believe that maybe that he's mad at his father for some reason, but and he can't take that anger out on his father or on his new stepmom, so he takes it out on Max essentially. Oh yeah. So that's yeah. like his outlet. So there must be a history with him and his dad, and maybe he's really pissed off that he remarried. There is also something else that we haven't found out yet. If you remember earlier in the season, they talk about there were hints to other some other blame being yeah. responsible for something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like that one of them was responsible for what happened. And maybe that maybe it's just that her Max's mom married his dad and that caused them to move away. And he's pissed about moving away from California. Maybe he maybe so. wanted to stay. I'm just, you know, I'm kind of trying to piece this together here. But uh, at this point, we don't know for sure. We're just kind of yeah. we're given little breadcrumbs to kind of uh, help us along. But we don't really know. Yeah. And Lucas has some really encouraging words here. I thought that was, mm-hmm. it was really neat. He says, you're cool and different and super smart. And then that moment ends with him saying, I like talking with you, Mad Max. I like talking with you, stalker. So yeah. apparently they have little pet names for each other, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is good stuff because, you know, he is, he's a stalker. And uh, yeah, those are the best names. The best nicknames is when you get named by somebody else. If you're naming yourself something, that's not really legitimate nickname. So stalker's right. cool in some ways, maybe. Other yeah. places not. I mean, it's endearing in the sense that he's not really a stalker. He just likes her. And now she gets that. You know, now she understands and I think yeah. from that point of view, it has a nice connotation, not a negative mm-hmm. one. Yeah. Well, their conversation is interrupted because outside the bus, a demodog is spotted. It's not taking the bait. So what does Steve do? Better man than me. He goes out there to lure <laughs> the dog out. He whips the bat like he does in season one, which I thought was epic. Yes, that's the way he just, he's very in control of that nail bat. Yeah, yeah. It's his, uh, his patented move. Yep. <laughs> And, and Max and Dustin really sort of sum it up. Max says, He's insane. He's awesome. Yes, he is Dustin. He's very awesome. The bromance begins. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. And then more dogs are spotted. This was another surprise to me. I thought maybe Dart was unique, but apparently not. He's got his own pack of, of friends. They hunt like raptors. You know, they kind yes, of they one. Do lures you out and then the others come in from the sides and then steve says clever girl (laughs) (laughs) i was waiting for that i was like no he doesn't bring that that up (laughs) if this was if jurassic park came out in 1983 he might have said that but he would have clearly we're a decade too late with that movie Steve would be a, a movie quoter, I think, if he I think if he so. had more access to them. I think he would be a guy who quotes movies. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I think he yeah, he's in a time where it was hard, as you say, hard to get access to films. There's only so much you can see on television. There's only so much playing at your local single screen theater in town. So yeah, it's it was a tough time to be a movie lover because you you just couldn't find a lot of what was out there. Yeah. So we can only hope that he is cool like that. And yeah. We can just assume, you know, <laughs> he's got other cool characteristics. So even if he exactly. can't quote movies, he's got those to hang his hat on or his bat on at this point. <laughs> and so we are expecting kind of an epic showdown. One of the dogs jumps onto the bus and there's this really fantastic shot of its face just trying to get into the the bus itself and Steve Mm -hmm. who's inside the bus at this point just thrusts his bat up to get him to move off. And then 
they take off. And we're like, wait, what's going on here? And I think it's Steve that makes a comment, something about their heading. I don't know what he says, but he notices that they're being lured away by something else. Yeah, they're going somewhere, I think he said, and like with purpose or with intent. The way they handled it, there was clearly a sound or something, which could have just been for our benefit, the viewer. There was kind of a sound, almost like something was calling to them. Mm-hmm. And they kind of, you know, they they look up and then they, yeah, they run off in a, with intent in in one direction. And I believe that they wait a moment to kind of exit the battle bus to make sure it's safe. And then they follow them, I believe, but I'm not sure. We kind of cut away before we see for certain if, if they are in pursuit of these dogs or not, or if they're just yeah. like, okay, we survived that. So let's just go home. Yeah. I'm not sure. I, yeah, we, again, yeah, and that's the last time we see them. Of course, there's only two minutes left in the show at this point. Yeah, this, was, so. yeah, this is the finale <laughs> so, of the episode. Yeah, we'll find out where they are along with everybody else. But we do know is where everybody else is that we have been hanging out with for the last 45 minutes. They are in Hawkins' lab. Then we go to the tunnels, and this is where the episode just takes one of the crazy turns for me. I did not expect this. This was amazing. Hopper spots where they are. They're at the graveyard where he was. I don't know if there's mm-hmm. something significant about that particular place. It's not mentioned in this episode, so I'll just leave that there. There are noises coming from down the tunnel. Everybody's got their, I guess, their fire sticks and their guns and everything ready to burn some stuff. The fog moves in. So here's where we find out that the fog is not just temperature driven. This is a part of maybe the character traits of these, uh, the demodogs. And then Will yeah. says, uh, I'm sorry. What? what? What do you mean, sweetie? He made me do it. Who? Who made you do what? I told you. They upset him. They shouldn't have done that. And my face went like, oh, oh, are you kidding me? Mike says, the spy. And wow. Yeah. We get like chaos. I love the use of the radar, how we see these dots that envelop these other dots and then the dots then move away. Like we know what happened. (laughs) It was just like aliens, if you remember, when they first yes. go, uh-huh. when the Marines first go in looking for the colonists, they haven't yet seen an alien or even know there's any aliens there. Much like the scene, they don't expect anything to be there. They see these, you know, heat signatures sort of show up on the radar they, or motion det- uh, sensors detecting them. And all you see and hear are just these guys getting ripped <laughs> to shreds. And hearing them screaming and you know hearing gunfire go off, it's yeah, it's it, and essentially that it's a trap, that it was an ambush all along. Yeah. That now, now we know, now everybody knows, and the, and the title of the episode pretty much comes from the scene right here, the spy, mm-hmm. right? That we thought that Will was the spy from a previous episode for the humans, kind of spying on what this entity wants or is doing, but really it has been using will to spy on us essentially yeah. and to yeah. trick us us meaning because we're all in the show <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to be in the show that I, no. no i, I want to be in pennsylvania <laughs> that's apparently where it's a little bit safer <laughs> that last shot adam 
of the creature yeah. popping up right before the uh, the episode goes to black, I'm like, oh my yes. gosh. It doesn't look like a Demogorgon. It doesn't look like a Demodog. It looks like something else. Now, it could be one of those two, but it looked like a human. It looked like some kind of mutated creature. And I'm like, are we getting a third creature? Like, what's happening? This is, yeah. this is crazy. I, yeah, it did have like almost like a claw-like hand appearance because that's all we see right we kind of see this claw or hand to reach up and clearly hopper is like 15 feet away behind a piece of plate glass and there's not a lot protecting him from uh whatever is about to emerge and clearly there are many of whatever this is so they're not in a, a particularly good position there and it makes me think too remember when they went down into this cavern there were dozens of people working doing tests down there they oh, must gosh, all be yeah. gone already like no, they must be done. dead <laughs> out of here they're they're yeah. dead yeah. <laughs> hawkins lab generation three gonna come up here in a few days <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> bring in some more boys dr owens yeah. comes in with his boys well he's out let's get gen <laughs> three in here for for that and that finished the episode man, man it know. was such a great another great cliffhanger great banger to to end it Excited to see kind of the last um, three episodes. I think we only got three left. That's right. I know. In this uh, nine episode season. So speaking of which, what is coming up next, Adam? Well, it's chapter seven entitled The Lost Sister. And it's directed by Rebecca Thomas. And this is, I looked it up, her only Stranger Things directing credit. And when this season came out, she was best known for an independent film called Electric Children which I haven't okay. seen, but uh, it must have impressed somebody <laughs> in the Stranger Things production office because she was given a chance to direct an episode of Netflix's most popular show. Yeah, I, I will mention here and now that this episode coming up is a little different than the others that we have seen. I won't get into any specifics. I don't want to spoil anything, but yeah, it's a little different. So that might answer why this particular director never returned. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, that's, that's a little unfair, but it's from a format standpoint, I guess I can say it's a little, a little different. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, I'm up for anything. I mean, this is why yeah. we, this is what we do this because episodes good or bad. We're going to get through it. And one bad episode or one lesser popular episode, whatever we call it, if it's not so good, doesn't taint the whole season. Hopefully. I'm good. Let's it's do it. Still, <laughs> it still moves the narrative along. It still um, enhances and develops the characters further. It's just when we get into it, you'll understand. <laughs> Got it. Will do, man. Yeah. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining in this conversation, for tuning in, for joining in, for being in, just all in. Hopefully, you're all in at this point because <laughs> we're having a great time with it. I'm Patch. He's Adam. And we are out of here. 